I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to this latest episode of okay let me tell you why you're wrong today we are back with adam smith and the wealth of nations with book one chapter seven of the natural and market price of commodities as always don't let the arid nature of the title fool you uh this is one of the most epic chapters in the whole of the Wealth of Nations, at least from the perspective of creating and codifying the subject of economics. So, Smith starts us off here by defining his terms. Of natural price, he says, quote, There is in every society or neighborhood an ordinary or average rate both of wages and profit in every different employment of labor and stock. This rate is naturally regulated, partly by the general circumstances of the society, their riches or poverty, their advancing, stationary, or declining condition, and partly by the particular nature of each employment. There is likewise in every society or neighborhood an ordinary or average rate of rent, which is regulated, too, partly by the general circumstances of the society or neighborhood in which the land is situated, and partly by the natural or improved fertility of the land. The ordinary or average rates may be called the natural rates of wages, profit, and rent at the time and place in which they commonly prevail. When the price of any commodity is neither more nor less than what is sufficient to pay the rent of the land, the wages of the labor, and the profits of the stock employed in raising, preparing, and bringing it to market according to their natural rates, the commodity is then sold for what may be called its natural price. 
The commodity is then sold precisely for what it is worth, or for what it really costs the person who brings it to the market. So, academic e-language aside, what does this mean? Well, Smith is defining natural price as the price that would sufficiently cover all the costs that go into bringing the product to market. That includes the rent of the land on which the commodity was made, divided evenly across all products made on that land for that rent. The wages of the laborers who worked to make it, divided evenly across all products made by the laborers, and the necessary profits of stock for each item. According to Smith, this winds up being precisely what the commodity is worth. I like to call this kind of precise economic uh, balance as Baby Bear, uh, in reference to the, the fairy tale of the three bears. All of Baby Bear's stuff, his porridge, his bed, etc., wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold, or too big, or too small. It was just right. Now, an important thing to note here is that natural price does in fact include the profits of stock made. I make note of that because it gets into an idea that I think can be conflated whenever people complain about the shortfalls of a market system. The reason why Smith includes the profits of manufacturers in the natural price is that he feels, correctly so, that those profits are necessary to the very existence of the product itself. With the prospect of those profits, no stockholder, and, and, and remember we're using Smith's definition of stock, not the modern understanding of the word. Anyway. No, no one with enough resources to establish a manufacturing operation would endeavor to establish one. Why expend your excess, you know, whatever, to establish a business paying for labor if you aren't going to be able to make a profit off of it? You'll find if, if, you, if you look deep enough into the black hole of anti-capitalist rhetoric, that there are people out there who feel that profits are a kind of immoral thing. Now, can profit uh, exceed a reasonable level? Can price gouging occur? Absolutely. And that is an honest concern and criticism of an economy centered on profit. But it's important to not respond so viscerally to the abuses of the system that you decide that the concept behind the system is somehow broken. The, the concept works. By railing against the very idea of profits, one risks throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As Smith is making clear here, those profits are the primary motivation for, for holders of stock to establish their businesses, to pay rents, to hire labor, and to produce a product for consumption. Without the profit motivation, it's unlikely that we would have fully formed products in the marketplace at all. 
and we'd be back to the the massively inefficient barter system that Smith talks about in earlier chapters. Smith says about this, quote, For though in common language what is called the prime cost of any commodity does not comprehend the profit of the person who is to sell it again, yet if he sells it at a price which does not allow him the ordinary rate of profit in his neighborhood, he is evidently a loser by the trade, since employing his stock in some other way he might have made that profit. His profit besides is his revenue, the proper fund of his subsistence, as while he is preparing and bringing the goods to market he advances to his workmen their wages, or their subsistence, so he advances to himself, in the same manner, his own subsistence, which is generally suitable to the profit which he may reasonably expect from the sale of his goods. Unless they yield him this profit, therefore, they do not repay him what they may very properly be said to have really cost him. Like we talked about last time, the, the holder of stock has to advance their resources to producing the product that will eventually be brought to market. They have to use those resources to establish the manufacturing and, and hire labor. They're taking the lion's share of the risk in such an endeavor, and profit is their reward and thus their motivation for doing so. So, including the profits of the holders of stock into the natural price is quite natural. Now, if that's the natural price, what's the market price? And what's the difference? According to Smith, the market price is the actual price at which a commodity is commonly sold. It's basically the price that you as a consumer are going to pay for a good. The market price can be the same as the natural price, but it can also be above or below the natural price. Now, you may be asking, if the natural price includes the profits that need to be made in order to make a market economy work, then how could the market price be different from the natural price. And this is where we get into the, the, the bread and butter of the entire subject of economics. In earlier chapters, I'd mentioned that Smith was kind of biting around the edges of a key concept in economics, and I promised that he would eventually get to the idea as we know it today. Well, this is where he does that. While natural price is affected by the cost of rents, wages, and profits, market price has a fourth factor that's affecting it. Because now that we're beyond talking about making something, and on to talking about selling something, there's another player involved in the equation. That being the consumer. Smith says, quote, the market price of every particular commodity is regulated by the proportion between the quantity brought to market and the demand of those who are willing to pay the natural price of the commodity. Now that should sound familiar. Very familiar. 
Alfred Marshall would become famous for crafting the graphical depiction of the supply curve and the demand curve in his book Principles of Economics, but since that was written in 1890 and The Wealth of Nations was written in 1776, it's safe to say Smith said it first. Catchphrase aside, Alfred Marshall would make some important adjustments, and he is, for my money, the most quotable economist of all time. Uh, one of my favorite Marshall quotes is one that uh, very much inspired the way I've structured the, this podcast and the way we talk about economic issues here. He said, quote, Every short statement about economics is misleading, with the possible exception of my present one. But we'll get to Marshall at some point in the future. He's definitely worth talking about at length. For now, getting back to Smith, here Adam Smith gets into one of those points that he's been building up to over the last few chapters, which is the importance of the relationship between the quantities brought to market, which we might choose to call supply, and demand. And how those two factors go on to impact the price of goods. Now, the reason that Smith has been building this idea over multiple chapters is to demonstrate how each factor in price is important separately, but that the price is determined by all these things together, including whether or not someone is willing to buy a product at a given price. And this dovetails into one of those economic concepts that I don't think can ever be overstated. You, as the consumer, have a role to play in determining the price of goods. You have input. It may seem like you go to the store and the prices are, are forced on you, uh, whether you like it or not. But that's not really the case. Your action, or inaction when it comes to offered prices can impact what those prices are. By purchasing something, even if you don't like the price, you're sending a signal to the producer, which is that though the price may be high, you're still willing to pay it. By not purchasing something, you're also sending a signal that the price is too high, and if they want you to buy their product, they need to lower that price. The expression of demand is incredibly powerful in the marketplace and, and too often overlooked or forgotten. But I'll get off my motivational soapbox now, because we do need to keep in mind something that Smith makes very clear here, that there's a difference between absolute demand and what he calls effectual demand. To make the distinction clear, he provides an example saying, quote, a very poor man may be said, in some sense, to have a demand for a coach and six. He may like to have it, but his demand is not an effectual demand, as the commodity can never be brought to market in order to satisfy it. In more modern terms, I may have a demand for an Aston Martin DB11, but unless I have or could reasonably 
get and spend $217,000, that's only an absolute demand and not an effectual demand. Just wanting something doesn't mean that your willingness to pay is critical to the market price of the good. You have to reasonably be able to cover that willingness to pay in order to be considered when looking at effectual demand. Now, it's the nature of the relationship between supply and and effectual demand that is going to set the price of a good. And we can see that most clearly when we shock or alter the nature of the market. Smith, Smith illustrates the two major shocks by saying, quote, When the quantity of any commodity which is brought to the market falls short of the effectual demand, all those who are willing to pay the whole value of rent, wages, and profit, which must be paid in order to bring it thither, cannot be supplied with the quantity which they want. Rather than want it altogether, some of them will be willing to give more. A competition will immediately begin among them, and the market price will rise more or less above the natural price, according as either the greatness of the deficiency or the wealth and wanton luxury of the competitors happen to animate more or less the eagerness of the competition. It's, it's the balanced equilibrium of market structure that he's talking about there. Let's take a quick example. Let's say that the product is chocolate, only because I've recently found out that there are people out there who actually do not like chocolate, which to me is just, I, I don't know, inconceivable. Let, let me be clear. It's not that they're allergic to chocolate. That would be one thing. They just don't like it, which... Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop myself before I go down a rabbit hole about how that makes no sense to me. Anyway, the commodity is chocolate. So, apparently, we all have different degrees of demand for chocolate. Which really means that what we're willing to pay in order to have chocolate is different. Even assuming that we all have exactly the same food budget. Based on that level of individual demand, each person vaguely has a price in mind over which they would simply refuse to pay for chocolate. Up to that point, each person is willing to sacrifice other things in order to still maintain their personal supply. Add everyone's personal demand for chocolate together, and you have the market demand for it. If supply of chocolate falls short of that demand, then those people who want chocolate more will be willing to pay a higher price, which will cause the market price to rise. While at the same time, those who like chocolate but aren't willing to pay the higher price will decline to pay and do without. Thus, the price rises to become the market price in this new scenario of chocolate shortages. Now, we can flip that too. Because if supply exceeds demand, if, if the chocolate producers make more chocolate than people normally want, 
then the chocolate seller in the marketplace will have to contend with a supply surplus that they can't sell. Because selling the chocolate, even at a loss, is better than not selling it and having excess chocolate. The seller will drop the price below the natural price so as to hopefully capture people whose personal demand was below the previous market price or to incentivize people who were already buying chocolate to buy more. Of course, the effect of this excess of supply applies differently to perishable goods than it does to non-perishable or durable goods. If you're trying to sell produce, you will be more willing to drop the price to get rid of it, because if you don't sell it, your product will rot and then you'll get nothing for it. If instead you're selling uh, wooden chairs, you won't have to drop the market price below the natural price, or, or at least not as drastically, because you can always hold on to your excess supply and not order more until what you have is sold. There's a separate consideration depending on how much it will cost you to store the, the, those excess chairs, but the, the point being, they're not going to rot if you don't sell them right away. In keeping with Smith's big idea of the interconnectedness of everything in the economy, these fluctuations in price can have larger ramifications. I'm going to read kind of a long passage from the chapter, but I think Smith does a better job here of describing what he's talking about than I could by paraphrasing him. He says, quote, When the quantity brought to market is just sufficient to supply the effectual demand and no more, the market price naturally comes to be either exactly or as nearly can be judged of the same with the natural price. The whole quantity upon hand can be disposed of for this price and cannot be disposed of for more. The competition of the different dealers obliges them all to accept of this price, but does not oblige them to accept of less. The quantity of every commodity brought to market naturally suits itself to the effectual demand. It is in the interest of all those who employ their land, labor, or stock in bringing any commodity to market that the quantity never should exceed the effectual demand, and it is in the interest of all other people that it never should fall short of that demand. If at any time it exceeds the effectual demand, some of the component parts of its price must be paid below their natural rate. If it is rent, the interest of the landlords will immediately prompt them to withdraw a part of their land, and if it is wages or profit, the interest of the laborers in the one case and of the employers in the other will prompt them to withdraw a part of their labor or stock from this employment. The quantity brought to market will soon be no more than sufficient to supply the effectual demand. All the different parts of its price will rise to their natural rate, and the whole price to its natural price. If, on the contrary, the quantity brought to market should at any time fall short of the effectual demand, 
some of the component parts of its price must rise above their natural rate. If it is rent, the interest of all other landlords will naturally prompt them to prepare more land for the raising of this commodity. If it is wages or profit, the interest of all other laborers and dealers will soon prompt them to employ more labor and stock in preparing and bringing it to market. The quantity brought thither will soon be sufficient to supply the effectual demand. All the different parts of its price will soon sink to their natural rate and the whole price to its natural price. The natural price, therefore, is, as it were, the central price, to which the prices of all commodities are continuously gravitating. Different accidents may sometimes keep them suspended a good deal above it and sometimes force them down even somewhat below it. But whatever may be the obstacles which hinder them from settling to this center of repose and continuance, they are constantly tending towards it. The whole quantity of industry annually employed in order to bring any commodity to market naturally suits itself in this manner to the effectual demand. It naturally aims at bringing always the precise quantity thither which may be sufficient to supply and no more than supply that demand. Okay. Aside from just really liking an excuse to use the word thither, <laughs> this is important. It's saying that across the greater macroeconomy, supply will always try to meet demand. This is really the ultimate strength, and and the occasional weakness of the market system. I say strength because this kind of thing happens naturally. You don't have to induce it. You don't have to plan it. You don't have to force it. If there is a demand for something, the market will supply it, and supply it in as close to a perfect quantity as can be estimated, because that's how markets work. I say weakness because Markets are genuinely responsive. If consumers demand something that isn't particularly good for them, the market will still find a way to supply it. People may dismiss celebrity gossip magazines as being a waste of time, but there are clearly people that want them, because the racks at my grocery store are filled with multiple kinds of, of gossip magazines. Most fast food is objectively unhealthy for people, and we'd all probably live longer if we didn't eat it, but clearly there is a demand for it, since there's a McDonald's every few blocks. So the market supplies it to us, whether it's healthy or not. The fact of the matter is that with a market system, you have to accept that demand will be supplied, even if you personally don't like what that demand is. This, to me, leads to the ultimate strength of economics as a subject, because economics has the ability to pull back the veil and establish what people really want and, and how they really feel about things. There, there's a sort of famous example in political science that is used to create skepticism when it comes to, to polling numbers. 
it, it, it originates from uh, the time during the Monica Lewinsky scandal in 1998 and 1999. And it's summed up pretty well like this. Numbers don't lie. They lie all the time. They lie when 72% of Americans say they're tired of a sex scandal, while all the while, newspaper circulation goes through the roof for anyone featuring the story. And this is where economics is better at analyzing people's opinions than political polling. People will lie to a pollster so as not to be seen as scandal-crazed gossip mongers. But if you just look at what they're spending their money on, you'll see what they actually care about. Okay, so back to Smith. He notes that in the scramble to get supply to match demand, most industries are fairly good at estimating this, and, and thus the market price of their goods doesn't tend to vary too much. The one exception to this that, that he mentions is agriculture, because farmers can't always precisely replicate their yields from year to year, and if demand for something skyrockets overnight, they can't just hire more labor to, to meet that demand. They have to wait for the thing to grow. Agriculture can also be affected by a lot more things that, that may impact their output. If it's just not a high-yield harvest, then they're coming to market with what they have. Blight, weather, insects, any of these things can dramatically change the supply of agricultural goods in the market, and at least in Smith's day, none of them can really be controlled for. So while most price fluctuations are caused by changes in demand, agriculture deals with both those changes in demand as well as fluctuations in supply. When it comes to the impact that fluctuations have beyond the marketplace, Smith is interested to discover that there are different ways that a price change affects each of the components of price. Wages and profits take the biggest hit, or the biggest increase, depending, while rent tends to not change all that much regardless of whether prices go up or down. As to, to wages and profit, Smith gives an example here. He says, quote, Such fluctuations affect both the value and the rate, either of wages or of profit, according as the market happens to be either overstocked or understocked with commodities or with labor, with work done or with work to be done. A public mourning raises the price of black cloth with which the market is almost always understocked upon such occasions, and augments the profits of the merchants who possess any considerable quantity of it. It has no effect upon the wages of the weavers. The market is understocked with commodities, not with labor, with work done, not with work to be done. It raises the wages of journeymen tailors. The market is here understocked with labor, there is an effectual demand for more labor, for more work to be done, than can be had. It sinks the price of colored silks and cloths, and thereby reduces the profits of the merchants who have any considerable quantity of, of them upon hand. It sinks to the wages of the workmen employed in preparing such commodities, 
for which all demand is stopped for six months, perhaps for a 12-month. The market is here overstocked, both with commodities and with labor. But though the market price of every particular commodity is in this matter continually gravitating, if one may say so towards the natural price, yet sometimes particular accidents, sometimes natural causes, and sometimes particular regulations of police may in many commodities keep up the market price for a long time together, a good deal above the natural price. Again, Smith is showing us the interconnectedness of the way markets work, fluctuate, and then return to normal. Another phenomenon that, that Smith takes a, a bit of delight in sharing is that uh, high profits on particular commodities are, are something that the holders of stock usually like to keep quiet. That, that may seem counterintuitive, but he puts it this way. Quote, when by an increase in the effectual demand, the market price of some particular commodity happens to rise a good deal above the natural price, those who employ their stocks in supplying that market are generally careful to conceal this change. If it was commonly known, their great profit would tempt so many new rivals to employ their stocks in the same way that the effectual demand being fully supplied the market price would soon be reduced to the natural price, and perhaps for some time even below it. If the market is at a great distance from the residence of those who supply it, they may sometimes be able to keep the secrets for several years together, and may so long enjoy the extraordinary profits without any new rivals. Secrets of this kind, however, it must be acknowledged, can seldom be kept long, and the extraordinary profit can last very little longer than they are kept. So, again, this idea that if, if you are in an industry that the, the price has, has risen above the natural price, especially if it's risen significantly, the, there's a problem. Yes, you're making extraordinary profits, but those extraordinary profits are going to uh, entice uh other holders of stock to to enter your market because again there, there's extraordinary profits to be made and that's going to create competition that competition is going to create increases in supply those increases in supply will meet the already high demand and the price will lower back down to the natural price uh it it has a uh, sort of uh, beautiful symmetry to it. Uh, he also covers the idea that while markets will always try to match demand with supply, there are some goods for which that cannot be done. The example that he uses is, is pretty broad in, in which certain products can only be created in limited quantities due to any number of reasons. I think a more specific example of, of what Smith is getting at would be champagne. For champagne to be champagne, it must come from the Champagne region of France. Everything else that's similar is technically sparkling white wine. Now, if you really want authentic champagne, you're going to have to pay for it, because 
The Champagne region has limited acreage and can only grow so many grapes and thus only make so much champagne. In this market, supply can never meet demand, so the price for this product will always be higher than the natural price. Of course, markets being markets, if you want what is essentially champagne, but your demand for it falls short of the market price for authentic champagne, producers from around the world are happy to sell you any number of kinds of perfectly good sparkling white wine at much cheaper prices, because their supply can meet demand. Smith then takes time to, to note the issue of monopolies. Now, for a full description of monopolies, I'll refer you back to the episode I did a few weeks ago on the subject. Here, Smith does point out one important idea that I think is worth reiterating. He says, quote, The monopolies, by keeping the market constantly understocked, but never by never fully supplying the effectual demand, sell their commodities much above the natural price and raise their emoluments, whether they consist in wages or profit, greatly above their natural rate. The price of monopolies is upon every occasion the highest which can be got. The natural price, or the price of free competition, on the contrary, is the lowest that can be taken, not upon every occasion, but for any considerable time together. And here Adam Smith is making something very clear, which, which I have endeavored to highlight to all of you listening throughout most of the, the shows we've done. It's an idea that I think has gotten lost, or in some cases actively obscured in, in, our, in our modern culture. It's the idea that in a free and competitive market, the seller is always at the disadvantage, and the prime beneficiary of this system is always the consumer. Competitive markets will always force the seller to offer the best quality product for the lowest price that they can possibly accept, because if they don't, someone else will, and consumers will flock to that other seller. This natural state of competition forces sellers and manufacturers to constantly improve their products to try to gain an edge over their competitors as well as constantly push for efficiencies that will allow them to drop their price even slightly lower than anyone else in the market as a result consumers are treated to the best quality product for the lowest possible price but this kind of arrangement is an exhausting burden to the seller and the manufacturer who would much rather halt all research and development, thus saving that money, and charge a much higher price for their products, thus increasing their profits. And I don't fault them for wanting that. That's just human nature. We'd all rather get more for doing less. Over the last, I don't know, 40 or so years, though, I feel like there's been a concerted effort to convince consumers that what is best for the economy is for all burdens and barriers to be lifted from sellers and manufacturers, to make things as easy as possible for them, 
and to never force them to a point where they have to adapt or die. If I'm right, and, and this effort has been made, it's a lie. Being a producer in the economy is supposed to be hard, because it's supposed to be a constant bare-knuckle brawl to stay afloat in the market. Competition is what drives that. And if you can keep up, well, then you get to make all the money. If you can't, someone else will. It's, it's Darwinian. Darwinian to the extreme. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm Now, I'm sure that I've gone on that rant, gotten on top of that soapbox before on this podcast, but it's incredibly important to remember, and so it's definitely worth repeating. Smith rounds out the chapter by uh, talking about how, for from certain conditions, market price may remain above the natural price for long periods of time, but when it falls below market price, it rarely stays there for long. This is because supply is usually easier to adjust to than demand. If there is an excess of supply and the price drops, the producers who are creating that supply will get fewer orders for their goods from the seller, and they will either downsize or go under, until the now decreased supply matches market demand again. And this serves to to emphasize how fluctuations in price reverberate across the whole economy rather than being limited to just the seller and the consumer. Now I'm going to close it out here. There there are a few more stray thoughts from Smith, but I'm going to save them because they either get expanded on more in later chapters or I think can be covered more fully in future topic episodes. Uh, Smith closes the chapter by setting up the next three. Again, this is all building to a bigger idea. Basically, we'll be spending the coming chapter episodes talking about how exactly we calculate what wages, profits, and rent are supposed to be, uh, as well as some of the inequalities that Smith notes in each. Something to look forward to. As always... If you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, or, well, I guess in in the case of these episodes, if you'd like to tell me why Adam Smith is wrong, uh, come on out and join our Facebook group, uh, where you can comment on the episode or suggest a topic uh, for a future episode. Again, I, I really don't mind taking suggestions from the, the listenership. Uh, Anything you might want uh, me to cover, I'm, I'm happy to. In some cases, I may have to spend some time doing some research on it, but I'm happy to do that. Uh, if you are not on Facebook but still want to keep in touch, you can email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. Uh, that is all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, be sure to take a minute give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, again, it, it really does help. Picks us up on the charts, helps get us, gets us, get the podcast noticed and, and helps build the listenership. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, again, don't forget, I do have another podcast out there. And if you 
love listening to economics, but also really like hearing about wedding planning, uh, you should uh, join myself and my fiance on our podcast, Let's Plan a Wedding. Uh, we discuss things involved in planning our upcoming wedding, as well as, you know, weddings in general. And of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with another topic episode, and then back in two weeks with The Wealth of Nations, book one, chapter eight. We're 72 pages in, only 956 more to go. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>